Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. L is for Low. Yes, Low, the 11th studio album by David Bowie, released on RCA on the 14th of January 1977, recorded following Bowie's move to West Berlin after a period of drug addiction and personal instability out in California. Low became the first of three collaborations with Brian Eno and producer Tony Visconti, later called the Berlin Trilogy. Indeed, so the album was in fact recorded largely in France, as we know, and marked a shift in Bowie's musical style towards an electronic and avant-garde approach that would be further explored on the subsequent albums Heroes from 1977 and Lodger in 1979. Although it was initially met with mixed critical reviews, Lowe has since become widely acclaimed as one of Bowie's best and most influential works. Definitely. The genesis of Lowe lies in both the foundations laid by Bowie's previous album, Station to Station, and in the music he recorded for the soundtrack of The Man Who Fell to Earth. And when Bowie presented his material for the film to Nicholas Rogue, the director, uh, Rogue decided it would not be suitable. Rogue preferred a more focused sound, although John Phillips, the chosen composer for the soundtrack, uh, described Bowie's contributions as haunting and beautiful. It's an odd one, this, isn't it? It's really peculiar. You've been interviewed Nick Rogue, haven't you? Yeah, we didn't talk about the soundtrack. We didn't right. know everything else but. But I know there's lots of different stories about Bowie, why Bowie didn't get the soundtrack gig in the end. I mean, there were talk about a, you know, a contractual wrangle and obligations that Bowie couldn't do it. Maybe, you know, Rogue didn't want Bowie to have too much of an imprint on the film. Maybe it was that. Well, yeah, I mean, there is that to consider, isn't there? But I I mean, if you look at the actual kind of image of the film and yeah. the feel of the film, you'd have to say that looking at side two of Low, it would have been just absolutely perfect. perfect. I mean, and, and John Phillips did a decent job. Yeah. But it's strange. I mean, we do the A to Z of our psych, don't we, on, yes, on we Six do. Music on our programme? And there's a film called The Trip, mm. uh, which <laughs> is Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and all the usual suspects, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Um, but uh, they, they, you know, it's a psychedelic film, as you mm. would imagine, and yeah. it's all about drugs and stuff. And so you would think that he would automatically go to one of the many you couldn't move for a psychedelic no, band. They were like, everywhere. They were, they were like a rat yeah. over here, and you're never yeah. more than 10 yards away from a, a psychedelic band <laughs> in California at that point in time, 1967, whatever. Yeah. He decides to go for the International Submarine Band. Which is Graham Parsons' band, isn't it? Which is a country band. It's, yeah, a, it's an it American is. old yeah. country band. And so uh, it just seemed uh, so inappropriate, and indeed it proved to be. I mean, it wasn't such a bad case with the man who fell to earth, but it's still a bit of a perplexing decision to make. Like you say, maybe there was just other forces yeah, at work there. But it is interesting, and it eventually got released, and lots of different people on the soundtrack. We have Phillips curated it, really, didn't yeah. he? Lots of different voices on there. Yeah, OK. So anyway, perhaps all this worked in Bowie's favour as elements from these pieces were incorporated onto Lowe instead. So he managed to salvage it and do a wonderful job and it yeah. did him a massive favour really the album's cover like Station to Station is a still from the movie the photographic image under the album's title formed a deliberate pun on the phrase low profile I mm. never got that before oh didn't you no, right, okay. no I right. didn't know I don't, I don't overthink things Bob you know me <laughs> Fire good. <laughs> there is a, a great spoof of that, isn't there, with Arthur Lowe, the oh. late actor, you know, in profile. Oh, uh, from Dad's Army. From and Dad's so Army. And it is yeah, a low, L-O-W-E, oh. with a picture of Captain Mannerin. <laughs> and it is one of my favourite <laughs> images ever. And it has been mine or my wife, Trace, our screensaver on our phones for months and months oh, and months. It? In fact, we were just talking about it a couple of days ago because it was just so, so brilliant. Cause the, have you seen the other one that's been knocking around on the internet, which is uh, Changes One Bowen? Yeah, Jim Bowen, the late comedian. 
and Bullseye and all that, changes one Bowen. So I love these, but, but I'd have shown it to Tracy and, yeah, that's brilliant, but it's still not low, and it, and it isn't. Anyway, no. and I didn't know this either. I probably should have done. The album's working title was New Music Night and Day. Yeah, so following Bowie's Thin White Duke period and the commercial success of the single's fame and golden years in 1976, he was eager to escape the drug culture of Los Angeles, where he developed a harmful cocaine habit, of he course. He certainly had. Uh, Bowie had also become embroiled in controversy regarding comments he'd made seemingly in favour of uh, fascism, and he blamed his erratic behaviour in his Thin White Duke period on his addictions and precarious mental state, which we've kind of gone into before, haven't we, when we talked about California? We have, and there's no doubt he wasn't in a good place, you know. I don't mean California by that. Mm. So he later explained, it was a dangerous period for me. I was at the end of my tether physically and emotionally and had serious doubts about my sanity. Again, that recurring theme, which uh, crops up largely uh, channeled through his uh, half-brother, Terry's schizophrenia, which which haunted him. That's right. Uh, Bowie moved to Switzerland in the second half of 1976, became a neighbour of Charlie Chaplin, of course, didn't he? That's right. Later that year, he and a mate, uh, Iggy Pop, went to Berlin in a further attempt to kick his drug habit and escape the spotlight. Bowie says, for many years, Berlin had appealed to me as a sort of sanctuary-like situation. It was one of the few cities where I could move around in virtual anonymity. I was going broke. It was cheap to live. For some reason, Berliners just didn't care. Well, not about an English rock singer anyway. Yeah, so while sharing an apartment with Pop, Bowie became interested in the uh, German music scene. He was already into that, wasn't he? He can really immersed himself in the music craft work and Neu. And during the months of his recovery, he also became interested in Brian Eno's minimal album Discreet Music, which came out in 75, eventually meeting up with Eno in 76, uh, backstage possibly at one of the Wembley gigs that Bowie had done. That's what we believe, yeah. yeah. So soon after, collaborations with Eno and producer Tony Visconti and Iggy Pop began. So the album was co-produced by Bowie and Tony Visconti with contributions, more of which later, yeah. from Brian Eno. And as a recovering cocaine addict, Bowie's songwriting on Low dealt with difficult issues. So this is Bowie. So there's oodles of pain in the Low album. That was my first attempt to kick cocaine. So that was an awful lot of pain. And I moved to Berlin to do it. I moved out of the coke centre of the world, i.e. Los Angeles, where Station to Station was recorded, into the smack centre of the world. Thankfully, I didn't have a feeling for smack, so it wasn't a threat. No. So Visconti contended that the title was partly a reference to Bowie's low moods during the album's writing Mm. and recording. Low famously features Bowie's first explorations of electronic and ambient music. Side one of the album is kind of short, direct, avant-pop song fragments. Side two, the longer, mostly instrumental stuff. Yeah, and so on these tracks, help was lent by Brian Eno, inevitably, who brought along his EMS suitcase, AKS synthesizer, uh, which Bowie was later given. Uh, somebody actually bought it, didn't they? Uh, from eBay, I think it might have been. Did they? Yeah, somebody bought it, so Eno must have put it up for sale. Somebody bought it and then gave it to Bowie, and then it, and it was actually in the part of the right. David Bowie's V&A exhibition. Yeah, that makes sense. Eno is often incorrectly given credit as Lowe's producer, much to Tony Visconti's annoyance, it's got to be said. Well, fair know. enough. Yeah. Eno was responsible for a good deal of the direction and composition of the second side of the album, and he wrote the theme and instrumentation for Warsaw, while Bowie was in Paris attending court hearings against his former manager, Tony DeFries. Yeah, and uh, going back to the Tony Visconti thing, I remember I interviewed Iggy Pop, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, maybe yeah. a little bit more, and he was on his tour outside the academy in Manchester mm. and I very very wrongly said so you know and David Bowie blah 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 and of course he produced um, Raw Power and he, went, he mixed it 
I produced it. He mixed it. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry, mate. Uh, but anyway, so Eno in turn was helped by producer Tony Visconti's four-year-old son who sat next to Eno playing A, B and C in a constant loop at the studio piano. And that phrase became the Warsaw theme. Fine, that's great. Didn't know that. On Bowie's return, Eno played him the work. Impressed, Bowie then composed the vaguely Eastern European sounding lyrics. Although the music was influenced by the uh, previously mentioned German bands, Lowe has been acclaimed for its originality and has also considered ahead of its time, not least for its cavernous treated drum sound, which was created by uh, Tony Visconti using what he could, well, it was an even-tied harmonizer. and to paraphrase what, how he described it, it sort of messed with the fabric of time, that's how he described it, wasn't it? Yeah, great, I mean, uh, which means he was quite secretive about it, which he was. So on the release of Low, Visconti received phone calls from other producers asking how he'd made this unique sound, but he wouldn't give up the information, instead asking each producer how they thought it had been done. <laughs> which <laughs> is the table. Yeah, just not having it. So in two 2004, Bjorn Randolph of Stylus Magazine said that had the album been released 20 years later, this would have been called post-rock, which again is mm. just a, a great pointer there, isn't it? Because yeah. you look at Bowie and people always go on about him kind of magpie lifting stuff and all that, but quite often the, the stuff that he would take, he would better. Yeah. I suppose that's just my opinion because I'm a massive Bowie fan, you know. Well, like. same here. A lot of it would be so forward-pointing, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah, and he had just mixing up all of the stuff that he'd learnt before and creating something that was his own, but yeah, he did lift stuff, we Definitely. Uh, this is, I didn't know this right until you did this research. RCA executives, upon hearing Lowe, wrote uh, a letter to Bowie rejecting the album and urging him to make an album more like Young Americans. Bowie kept the rejection letter on his wall at home. I love that. He does. He actually alludes to that in the um, in the Let's Dance, uh, not the press conference, but uh, an interview around it. And obviously Let's Dance begins with L, so so brace yourself. Okay, so the critical uh, reaction to Lowe at the time, it was relatively divided, wasn't it? It was. Uh, John Millward, writing in Rolling Stone, uh, said that Bowie lacks the self-assured humour to pull off his avant-garde aspirations, and he found the album's second side weaker than its first, saying... Side one, where Bowie works within the more conventional rock trappings, is superior to side two's experiments, simply because the band forces discipline into Bowie's writing and performance. Well, there is is something in that, only in as much as they are radically different and hmm. you can hear you can hear a full band at work and and, it, and that delivered the, the hit singles yes. from Low. So. and on the other side you just got what almost sounds like a completely different album yeah completely totally in the Village Voice Robert Christgau found Side One's seven fragments to be almost as powerful as the overlong tracks on Station to Station but described the movie music on Side Two as banal although he later revised his opinion on the second side after the release of Heroes writing that Low now seems quite pop slick and to the point even when the point is background noise. Yeah, okay, well, fair enough. Everybody's allowed to change their opinion, aren't they? Los Angeles Times critic Robert Hilburn shared a similar sentiment and stated, for 12 minutes, this is Bowie's most striking and satisfying album since Ziggy. Well, he's already on. Well, he's off there. Yeah, you know, okay. (laughs) Um, uh, But the remaining 26 minutes, including all of Side 2, deal with a spacey art rock style that is simply beyond mass pop sensibilities for it to build much enthusiasm. That doesn't say much, though, that, does it? Rather than saying this isn't very commercial. It says it all in the fact that he thinks he's been a bit pants and ziggy. You know, so he, well, that's totally wrong. I mean, you know, we, we would all go in a different a direction there to, to prove how wrong he could be. I yeah. mean, I, w- I would, uh, for instance, just haul young Americans in front of him and go, what the hell are you on about? But mm-hmm. uh, again, opinions. Well, you know, I'd just dig out Diamond Dogs and just fair listen enough. to this. So yeah. by contrast, the enemy found Lowe stunningly beautiful and uh, said it was the sound of Sonata reproduced by Martian computers. 
No, which is supposed no. to be a, a compliment. <laughs> yeah, that, well, nobody knows how to react, really, no. do they? I mean, and, and you know, that there's also, of course, uh, the Charles Charles Murray thing, which we've been into. Yeah, we, we have, haven't we? A, a so, great depth. We don't need to drag him through that no. one. But he hated it, and Ian MacDonald loved it. So there's for and against, weren't there, in the enemy? There was, and it, it was a case for the defence and the prosecution, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But I think the, the reality of it was, and, and for me also, was that you didn't know how to take it at the beginning. No, you put side one on, you think, yeah, this is a really great pop album. And then you put side two on, you think, oh, what's going on here, really? Well, the first time I heard it, I mean, I love side one of Low. I mean, I love Low just full stop. But the, when I first bought, so this being as of 1981, when I really got into Bowie, and I bought Low on cassette, and because I had a cassette player, and I found sort of side two so forbidding, it was so annoying just to keep rewinding to side one all the time. But later on, I mean, I'm talking sort of early 90s, I rediscovered Low and just played side two all the time because I just found it like a wonderful piece of music which I couldn't appreciate at the time it's a good point because not only uh, if you look at vinyl that's like a bit tricky and uh, a bit gnarly like yeah. f- flitting around getting your, your favourite tracks and everything on CDs you just do what you like yeah. obviously you digitally put it on your computer you can go wherever you like uh, but with cassettes that's a real oh, pain in the ass. it was annoying it really oh, was oh Bobber okay so Billboard called the album Second Side the most adventurous and a stark contrast to the few distorted hard rock cuts on side one and wrote that Lowe emphasises both with serious writing efforts, which only time can tell will appeal to all the people who have watched him go through various musical phases. Fair enough. John Rockwell of New York Times wrote that there are hardly any vocals, and what there are is mostly mindless doggerel heard from afar, and the instrumentals are strange and spacey. Nevertheless, the whole thing strikes this listener as remarkably, alluringly beautiful. He right, has a point. I, you see, I thought he was going to give it a stinker then, but he just uh, salvages it at the mm. end. So Lowe was a commercial success, peaking at number two on the UK album chart and number 11 on the US Billboard pop album chart Sound and Vision and Be My Wife of course were released as singles the former reached number three on the singles chart over here in the UK yeah when you look at its legacy in 2003 Low was ranked number 249 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time bit of a low placing for me it is a low placing and I wonder what other Bowie albums were above it mm. I'll go see anyway right. we've got the uh, track list in here yeah. haven't we so uh, yeah you've got Side One Speed of Life uh, Breaking Glass What in the World Sound and Vision. Always crashing in the same car. Be My Wife. A new career in a new town. So that run of tunes is just, is. you know, there's no doubt about it that that is, a, a, in essence, the perfect pop album, really. Yeah, the modern pop album. Anyway, side two. So you get to Warsaw. Yeah, written with Brian Eno, of yeah. course. Art Decade. Weeping Wall. And Subterranean. Yeah, so definitely a game of two halves. I think he should have called the album a game of two halves. Oh, what a great title that would have been. Mark. David's loss. So the personnel, David Bowie, obviously. Yes. Uh, Brian Eno, of course, on various instruments. Yeah. Carlos Alomar. Dennis Davis. George Murray. Ricky Gardner. And Roy Young, R.I.P. Yeah, on pianos and organ. And, of course, Iggy's on there, backing vocals too. Yeah, Mary Visconti, it says here, we know as Mary Hopkin from uh, Those Were The Days. So, yeah. Absolutely. Edward Meyer on cellos. Yeah, Peter and Paul, pianos and arp. So that's Peter Robinson and Paul Bookmaster. Yeah, Bookmaster worked with Bowie before, hadn't he, and on the Man Who Fell To Earth soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you look at the influence. I know we'd covered influences in uh, K for Krautrock. But we know that Tangerine Dream's Edgar Froese was possibly the biggest influence on this album. And this is what he had to say. Yeah, he said, There were not too many ways for a German rock musician to perform music, to make music, even to think of the theoretical development of music, because there was no heritage in the country. And he went on to say, The Germans were in a very bad situation. You couldn't forget that. They were so stupid and guilty for it to start two wars. As horrific as it was, it had one 
forgive me to say that, one positive point. There was nothing else to lose, he said. They lost everything. And so when we thought about doing music in a different form, there was only the free form, the abstract form. Yeah, uh, well, he should know. I mean, and he was, yeah, obviously in the, in the post-war Germany. And you saw all of those bands coming through. You know, like, uh, well, Amon Duel, you know, and the collectives and yeah. all that, really railing against what had gone before them mm. and, and forming all of these underground cliques. But at the same time, just rejecting everything that came across from Britain or America. So there's no blues or any of that lot going on. It was like a, a completely year zero. Very, very insular, yeah. Let's look at some, not all of the uh, songs on low. Uh, well, not in depth anyway. But this is very interesting from uh, Culture PL website. Yeah, okay. This is about Warsaw. So Bowie visited Warsaw only twice in 73 and 1976. Both visits were simple train stopovers during his journeys between Western Europe and Moscow. A Bowie biography diggers are um, not in agreement, aren't they, about which of these visits resulted in the titling of the song Warsaw. So we'll indulge them and give this story of two alternative introductions. Now, these aren't ours. These are, once again, from the website just mentioned. And uh, and it's worth reminding ourselves at this point in time that Bowie wouldn't fly. He yeah. said, in the early 1970s, David Bowie had a severe fear of flying. I won't fly because I have a premonition I'll be killed in a plane crash if I do. If nothing happens by 1976, I'll start to fly again. Okay, so-, so it must have been in his dream, which, uh, which was kind of instigated by his dad, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We know that. Uh, there must have been something in there about it's going to be in 1975 or whatever. And so he's got in his mind, all right, if, if it doesn't happen by yeah. 1976, maybe, maybe, maybe my dream was wrong. Yeah, I wonder if he had a calendar. You know, that's kind of ticking the dates off. Possibly. So here we go. This is theory one. So between February and May 1973, Bowie completed an entire circuit of the Earth, crossing the Atlantic by ship. Then he made his way across the States by van and train before crossing the Pacific by ship to perform in Japan. Uh, after finishing his concert tour in Japan in April 73, he decided to go back to London by train, going across the entire width of the Soviet Union, and he took the almost 10,000-kilometre-long Trans-Siberian Railway to get to Moscow and there changed for the legendary Ost-West Express that used to link Moscow with Paris, and the latter always stopped in Warsaw for technical reasons, usually for about an hour. OK, so they are suggesting that that's when he jumped ship or yeah. train and uh, went for a wander and got yes. the inspiration. So theory two, other Bowie experts, that say that during that first visit to Warsaw, he spent most of the stopover being held up on the train by rigorous passport control officers. Uh, that would mean he could only have seen glimpses of the city through the window of his compartment on the train. However, the thin white duke came back to Warsaw in 1976, this time accompanied by Iggy Pop. During this brief visit, the train was kept at the station for a few hours while they were free to stroll around. OK, so no matter if it was 73 or 76, Bowie used the occasion to leave the train and take a short walk around Warsaw Gdanska station. Yeah, he went north and reached Paris Commune Square, which is now called Wilson Square, apparently, and popped into a nearby record shop. Reportedly, upon entering, he saw the shop assistant showing a record by the Slask Polish National Song and Dance Ensemble to one of his customers. How unlikely is that, Bob? <laughs> this is great. Well, we heard the music, bought the record, and went back to Warsaw Gdanska to catch his train before it continued its journey. No one would ever have known about his short stay in Warsaw if it hadn't been for that one seemingly insignificant vinyl record. OK, so the lyrics it came up with, sometimes believed to be in Polish, were actually invented by him and do not mean anything in any language known to humankind. Oh, well, you know, we know these off by heart, don't we, Mark, really? Of course we you do. Know. Mm, 
Bocelli Venky Deo. There is a bit in it where it goes slightly Harry Belafonte if you listen to the record, isn't it? It's a, not in that bit. No, it's certainly not in that bit. I tell you what does uh, spring to mind as well. I mean, the cocktail twins, Liz Fraser invented her own yeah. language, didn't she? I wonder if she was inspired by this. Very possibly. Anyway, in the previously mentioned interview, Bowie said that he believed that the phonetics of the lyrics could express the emotions and convey the message even if they didn't really mean anything. Warsaw proves him right. The choral part, perfectly fitting the solemn but gloomy character of the music, had become one of the best illustrations of longing for freedom ever recorded in popular music. Wow. Yeah, there is another interesting theory, isn't there? Ian Curtis of Joy Division was so obsessed with Warsaw that he initially named his band Warsaw, changing the name to Joy Division only to avoid confusion with a London-based band called the Warsaw Pact. That is according to the author uh, Wojciech Oleksiak in uh, January 2016. Yeah, and uh, and it's known also, tragically, that um, when the day that uh, Ian Curtis actually committed suicide, he had a copy of The Idiot yeah. on his turntable, didn't yeah. he? On to the song Sound and Vision then, this written by Chris O'Leary, and it does feature Tony Visconti's wife, mentioned earlier. So in the autumn of 1976, David Bowie was exhausted from touring, estranged from his wife and breaking with his manager, the second such break in two years. His finances were in disarray. He was trying to shake an addiction to cocaine, and he hadn't written new songs in nearly half a year. And this is a quote, the whole period stretching through to 1976 was probably the worst year or year and a half of my life. That's what he told the enemy, actually, in 1980. Yeah, so this would be in part the story of the album Low, a depressed, run-down man trying to see if he can write songs again, half wondering whether he wants to write songs again. And it began as a goodwill project to produce a solo record for his friend Iggy Pop. You know, to get him back on his feet again at last. Yeah. And then he talks about working on The Idiot with uh, Iggy in Chateau Derville near Paris and then getting up the enthusiasm himself to make his own record. Hurrah! So one song started with Bowie giving a simple chord progression to his band and singing a few melodies. His drummer, Dennis Davis, thought it sounded like the Crusaders' stomp and book dance. His bassist, George Murray heard Bo Diddley in there. Okay, the band cut the backing tracks with their usual economy. A few takes, all done. Bowie would call it Sound and Vision. It was his ultimate retreat song, he would later say. It was wanting to be put in a little cold room with omnipotent blue on the walls and blinds on the windows. This is good. It says it was also, in a way, the archetypal Bowie song. It's a piece about depression and isolation, at times seemingly assembled at random, that was set to a melody so bright and catchy that it became a number three single in the UK. So yeah, this thing born out of dark just sounded like a really great bouncing pop song, didn't it? And I tell you what, I do DJ from time to time. Yes. And when Bowie passed away, I did some um, uh, Bowie-related events, you know. Mm. And and when you put Sound and Vision on, the whole place just bounces. I bet. I yeah, bet. Absolutely. It's irresistible, isn't it? Anyway, so Chris O'Leary is the author of Rebel Rebel, by the way, which is a guide to Bowie's songs based on the blog Pushing Ahead of the Dame. Yeah. So we're coming to uh, Breaking Glass now. So the lines, don't look at the carpet, I drew something awful on it, refer to Bowie's practice of drawing the tree of life on the floor during his period in California as he was interested in Alistair Crowley and the Kabbalah at the time, wasn't he? He most certainly was and also what in the world? So again, this is a technical issue really but the song makes use of the harmonizer which Tony Visconti brought to the studio which was used to Dennis Davis's drumming. The song also features Iggy Pop on backing vocals. Always crashing in the same car so the song's lyrics express the frustration of making the same mistake over and over again. The narrator of the song recounts driving at high speed in circles around a hotel garage cautiously checking for danger yet still inevitably crashing while a girl named Jasmine looks on. Okay, so the song refers to a real-life incident in Bowie's life that occurred at the height of his cocaine addiction. Driving his Mercedes, he'd spotted a drug dealer on the streets who he believed had ripped him off. 
So in retaliation, Bowie repeatedly rammed his own car into the dealer's car, after which he returned to his hotel and ended up driving around in circles in the hotel's underground garage. This is a tale he told when he was in a BBC theatre gig. It was in 1999, I think. Yeah, yeah the BBC Radio Theatre. And so I went to it, and of course the actual uh, show itself is available on the three CD pack for the Bowie at the Beeb. Yeah. And uh, it was a weird night, actually. I mean, I was so lucky to be there. And I remember vividly, Bowie had a chest infection. Right. And so it was it was touch and go for a while. You know, mm. I mean, obviously working for the BBC and knowing Bowie a little bit, I knew what was going on. And uh, and it was touch and go. Uh, but he ended up doing it. But he ended up having a, uh, a steamer. You know, so he had a little, right, it, almost okay. like a flask, but with a little face mask on it yeah. as well. And every now and then, a little bit like Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet, he would have to turn around quite simply and yeah. put the mask to his face and breathe in deeply to just settle his chest down again Gosh, and turn around wow. and do it. And it was within that gig that he did tell the story. And, and I think he seemed to allude in that particular exchange that he was going to commit suicide. Right, yeah. That, that's what I remember. I have got the world's worst memory, but it seemed to be... No, a, you're right, because I remember, there, I have got a transcript of that somewhere, and he does it definitely does allude to that, certainly. Really very stark. And, you know, if you think about it, I mean, for maybe, like, uh, Duncan, Duncan, his lad, mm. uh, to hear his dad talking in those ways, it must have been really kind of, uh, again, stark and, and, and scary, you yeah, know, to think absolutely. that your dad had been through that. Anyway, it was also reported that Jasmine, uh, you just mentioned the lady there, refers, actually, to Iggy Pop, who was in the car with him at the time, supposedly. And there are two verses to the piece. This is so funny. Although three were planned in the studio. In the studio, Bowie sang a third verse in a Bob Dylan style. So, yeah. Right. Who are we getting in the same gun? I don't think so. However, given Bob Dylan's infamous motorcycle accident years earlier and the song's subject matter, the band considered such a move to be crass. And Bowie asked for Tony Visconti to delete the verse from the recording. Wow, I didn't I, know I, that. It would be very interesting to hear it, wouldn't certainly, it? Certainly, certainly. So, also uh, worth repeating here. So, Symphony Number 1. So, you know, this is uh, we talked about Philip Glass, didn't we, in one of the earlier podcasts. Uh, mm. Sort of reinterpreting Low and Heroes and Lodger coming up, of course. Uh, so Symphony Number no. One Low is also known as the Low Symphony, uh, which was by Philip Glass and based, of course, on Bowie. It's all based on Bowie, but it's interpretations yeah. of. Nice, very, very loose interpretations. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. L is for Lionel Bart, born the 1st of August 1930, died the 3rd of April 1999, and he was a composer and writer of British pop musicals and music. He was. He was largely responsible for the birth of British pop. His Tommy Steele hit, Rock With The Caveman, becoming the first British pop song to break into the American Top 40, and he was the sole creator of the internationally acclaimed musical Oliver, came out in 1960. Yeah, so with Oliver and his work alongside revolutionary theatre director Joan Littlewood at the Theatre Royal Stratford East, he played an instrumental role in the 1960s birth of the British musical theatre scene after an era when American musicals had dominated the West End. He's a, a, you know, doing these notes, he's such an important character. Definitely, definitely. As we mentioned, Oliver, you know, is his signature work. He was described by Andrew Lloyd Webber as the father of the modern British musical. So in 1963, he won the Tony Award for the best original score for Oliver, and the 1968 film version of the musical won a total of six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. His other notable composition include the theme song to the James Bond film from Russia With Love and Living Doll by Cliff and the Shadows. So by the mid-60s, he was well known for his outlandish lifestyle, his celebrity friends, his excesses and parties, and uh, he was better known for them than his work by some people. He was. So he's born Lionel Begleiter, the youngest of seven surviving children of Galician Jews, Yetta and Morris Begleiter, who was a master tailor. 
He grew up in Stepney. His father worked in the area as a tailor, as I mentioned, but in his garden shed. I right. love that idea. The yeah. family had escaped the deadly pogroms against the Jews by Ukrainian Cossacks in Galicia, which was then part of the Austrian Empire. Lionel Bagleiter changed his name to Bart, said to be derived from when he passed by St. Bartholomew's Hospital on the top deck of a bus after he'd completed his national service with the Royal Air Force. Right, OK. A more likely derivation of Bart is from the silk screen printing company he founded with John Gorman, G and B Arts. Bart, okay. So, as a young man, he was an accomplished painter. When Bart was age six, a teacher told his parents that he was a musical genius. So, his parents gave him an old violin, but he didn't apply himself and the lesson stopped. Okay, at the age of 14, he obtained a junior art scholarship to St. Martin's School of Art. One Friday afternoon, he was suspended for mischievousness, along with another student, John Groom, for making a noise with the rest of the class involving set squares, another paraphernalia mark. How naughty. Uh, So, on the following Monday, he returned to the school with a long explanation of peripheral involvement in the disturbance i.e. it wasn't me your honour and he was reinstated so after St Martin's he gave up his ambition to be a painter and took jobs in silk screen printing works and commercial art studios he never learned to read or write musical notation. That's interesting isn't it? That's, uh, that's unbelievable for what he achieved yeah most Yeah certainly. that's an inspiration he started his songwriting career in amateur theatre first at the International Youth Centre in 1952 where he and a friend wrote a review together called IYC Review 52. So the following year, the pair auditioned for a production of the Leonard Irwin play The Wages of Eve at London's Unity Theatre. Shortly afterwards, Bart began composing songs for them, contributing material, including the title song, to its 1953 review Turn It Up and songs for its 1953 pantomime and agitprop version of Cinderella. Agitprop, I like it. Whilst at the Unity, he was talent-spotted by Joan Littlewood and so joined Theatre Workshop. He also wrote comedy songs for the Sunday lunchtime BBC radio programme The Billy Cotton Band Show. He did. He first gained widespread recognition through his pop songwriting, penning numerous hits for the stable of young male singers promoted by artist manager and music publisher Larry Parnes, including the hits Living Doll for Cliff Richards and Rock with the Cavemen, handful of songs, Butterfingers, and Little White Bull for <laughs> Tommy Steele. That is a classic. During this period, Steele and Mike Pratt were his songwriting partners. He won three Ivor Novello Awards in 57, a further four in 1958, and two more in 1960. Talented guy. Absolutely. Bart is also credited as being the first manager of <gasps> the Rolling Stones, wow. and at one stage was Judy Garland's manager. That's that's oh. bonkers. I've never heard that before. No, talk about many talents. And, of course, there is a Bowie crossover here, isn't there? Because Ken Pitt, before he was involved with Bowie, was doing a lot of radio promotion and tour managing for Judy Garland when she'd come over and play. Yeah, well, CK for Ken Pitt. It's yes. all in there, isn't it? OK. OK, so Bart's first professional musical was 1959's Lock Up Your Daughters. Following that, Things Ain't What They Used to Be, produced by uh, Joan Littlewood's Theatre Workshop was a landmark in British theatre, noted for encouraging the use of authentic Cockney accents on the London stage and bringing an end to censorship of British theatre. Do you know, and also Bowie, as we know, would sometimes go extremely Cockney, wouldn't he? Very much so, yeah. So that, that you can see where the uh, Lionel Barr influence comes in, and there's cross-pollination in a short while anyway. Certainly. Oliver, 1960, based on Dickens' Oliver Twist, was a huge hit from the beginning and became the first modern British musical to be transferred successfully to Broadway. 
Broadway. It has kept its popularity right through to the present day and for many years was a standard musical performed by schools in the UK. The original stage production, which starred Ron Moody and Georgia Brown, contains uh, such song hits as As Long As He Needs Me and Consider Yourself. It also is notable for featuring Australian satirist Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna, in his first major stage role as Mr Sowerberry and future rock star Stevie Marriott, as we know of the small faces yeah. and Humble Pie. Davy Jones, ironically, before the monkeys, he'd also been in Coronation Street, hadn't he? He had, yeah. Yeah, and Phil Collins of Genesis fame as the Artful Dodger. So the music of Oliver was transcribed by Eric Rogers, who wrote and composed 21 scores for the Carry On films. Unlikely, but true. So Bart hummed the melodies and Rogers wrote the notes on his behalf as he still couldn't read or write music. He just not bothered. <laughs> not at all. In 1968, Oliver was made into a film starring Ron Moody, Oliver Reed and Shani Wallace that won several Oscars, including Best Film. It's estimated that around this time, Bart was earning £16 a minute from Oliver. Now, that's not to be sniffed at, is it, in 1968? Yeah, serious style. Uh, but his next productions went from successful to flops in very quick succession. They did, yeah. As a result, he rashly used his personal finances to try to rescue his last two productions, selling his past and future rights to his work, including Oliver. Ooh. Oh, man. Ooh. Which he sold to the entertainer, Max Bygraves, for 350 quid. This is crazy. You know, oh. so and Max Bygraves, apparently, he later sold the rights on for £250,000. And this was all to realise capital to finance the shows. Right. And then Bart later himself said he estimated that the action cost him over £1 million and the rest, Oh, absolutely. Say. And by 1972, tragically, he was bankrupt with debts of £73,000. That is such a sharp rise and descent, isn't it's it? It's awful. That? A 20-year period of depression and alcoholism ensued. He eventually stopped drinking, although the years of substance abuse seriously damaged his health, leaving him with diabetes and impaired liver function. And so to his list of triumphs, Bob. Yeah, Lock Up Your Daughters, as mentioned, 1959. Uh, ditto, Things Ain't What They Used To Be. Oliver, of course, 1960. Blitz, 1962. Maggie May, 1964. Twang, 1965. La Strada, 1969. Which is where it started to go a bit Pete Tong. And then Lionel uh, in 1977, which is uh, obviously a posthumous tribute. Yes, of course. So on to the Bowie timeline then, Bob. Let's do it, show. So this, again, from Kevin Can's amazing book, Any Day Now. So here we go. 15th of September 1965, Ralph Horton visits Ken Pitt at his offices to talk about co-managing David Jones, as he was then known. Uh, Pitt is unsure, but advises Horton to have David Jones change his name as a Manchester-born entertainer of the same name is making a big splash in Lionel Bart's production Oliver across on Broadway. He was playing the artful Dodger. So indirectly... You could say a pivotal moment in the young Bowie's career was instigated by Lionel Bart. Absolutely. So the 13th of May 1967, Ken Pitt, now managing David Bowie, as he was then called, uh, they both went to see a production of Oliver at the Piccadilly Theatre in London. On 21st of February 1968, Lionel Bart is positive about the copy of David Bowie's debut album that Pitt has sent him. He's certainly on my list of faces to watch, he said. Uh, Bowie's debut recognisably owes a debt to Lionel Bart's work, many of the songs being very theatrical by nature. And I wonder if Bowie's occasionally, you know, that Cockney accent we talked about, was directly informed by the Artful Dodger and all that. And we know Anthony Newley, of course, but, you know, Lionel Bart is certainly right there in the mix. You would have thought Bowie would have gone for the audition for the Artful Dodger as well, wouldn't you? Certainly. You always wanted to be on the stage, didn't you? So, anyway, the 4th of May 1969. So, this is the birth of the Beckenham Arts Lab in the back room of the mock Tudor pub known as the Three Tons. Opened by David with an acoustic set of the songs he's developed over the year, many of which are destined to appear on his next album. He also has designed the poster which is displayed in the pub. 
Tonight, there is an audience of 50 people, including local musician Roger Wooten and other members of his group Skin. The club is off to a good start. The ticket money provided the organisers with a respectable £10 profit. OK, among those invited to give talks and make presentations is one-time spiritual teacher, the Buddhist monk Chaim Young Dong Rinpoche, and Oliver composer Lionel Bart, who gives a series of comic monologues. How interesting, Mark. Super! And on the 16th of August, 1969, the famous free festival Croydon Road, Beckenham. And this has been well covered in the series already. But in short, performances that day from David, Bridget St John, Armory Kane, Son, Keith Christmas, The Straubs and Lionel Bart. So there was definitely a, a relationship blossoming here on them. There was. Move on to the 20th of November now, 1969. An evening with David Bowie at the Purcell Room in South Bank in London. Support is provided by Junior's Eyes, along with Arts Lab favourites, the uh, rock group, also the rock folk group, uh, Comus. In the audience of many friends and supporters, David's mum is there with Ken Pitt, Gus Dudgeon and Lionel Bart also present. Yeah, so the 8th of January, 1972. You have to, uh, you have to assume that there was some other cross-pollination and friendship going on in between these, yeah. but these are what are documented anyway. Okay. A party is held at Haddon Hall for David's 25th birthday, at which he is presented with a battery-powered razor by his band. Lionel Barr and Lou Reed are among the guests to witness David's entrance on the grand staircase. <laughs> how old to be there? I know, how just how great. I wonder if they all waited at the bottom and had a look up. Oh, they know. will have done, won't they? But I mean, also, this is the birth of Ziggy, so carry on. Yeah, so David is wearing a light green quilted Ziggy suit he had designed by Freddie Beretti and has been made from 1930s fabric by Seamstreet friend Sue Frost and David compliments this with a short backcombed haircut akin to the one he sported in his days as a mod styled by Susie Fussy. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast well that would be much appreciated. In the next episode Let's dance. Lift off with Aisha, the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Cowboy